Hello, my name is Chris Salter and welcome to the Junior Family Law Podcast. A collaboration between Burgess Salmon, Mills and Reeves and Newton Kearns. Hello, my name is Louise Tromans. I'm a senior associate at Mills and Reeve, having trained at the firm and qualified in family. Today I'm joined by Carrie Stoneham, a four-year PQE associate at Burgess Salmon, and Hebe Thorne, a one-year PQE solicitor also at Burgess Salmon. In this episode, we are going to be discussing C100 and C1A forms in respect of Children Act proceedings. So in terms of issuing Children Act proceedings, a form C100 needs to be completed But obviously, as part of this, there are some pre-action considerations to discuss with your clients before taking that step. Yeah, I think it's important to um, advise the client fully as to what the impact of issuing Children Act proceedings will be and the effect this is going to have on on their relationship as parents and the effect this would have on the children. Um, And issuing an application really does need to be a, a last resort. I know that we often advise clients uh, to use the resources available on the resolution websites and consider looking at putting together a parenting plan. As we advise them, it's always better for them to be able to um, come up with their own arrangements rather than have an order imposed on them by a court. And I think also as as well as advising um, mediation, something else to consider is a client's going to see a family therapist um, as they can often see the children as well as the parents um, and it's just a really good way to give support for the parents to, to learn to co-parent together and how to provide the children with the support uh, that's needed. So I think it's really important to consider these practical options with clients first of all and just make them make them aware of the resources that are available and the support that's out there. I think that's a really good point Carrie and actually if you've got a client and you're having conversations about Children Act proceedings chances are that the communication with um, the other parent has got to a pretty um, bad state so actually having those practical conversations about the long-term solutions can be just as helpful whereas when they sometimes feel just a bit backed into a corner and they think that children proceedings are the only way actually having a frank discussion about what that means in the long term and what that means for their their family is really important and not to be shied away from. I always think sometimes in terms of pre-action considerations it's always good to kind of give a one last chance um before issuing so one one tip that um I try I try to do on cases is write to the other parents clearly setting out proposals for contact and how they see child arrangements moving forwards to say that you know court proceedings are not a step that they want to take but if matters can't be agreed then we're left in a difficult position that 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 is really the only option if other methods have been exhausted And sometimes just giving them one final push sometimes can avoid having to make an application altogether. And and if an application is then necessary, I tend to enclose that kind of pre-action letter um, with my application. Do you find sometimes with clients it's a bit difficult for them to separate, especially if they've got financial proceedings going on, to separate the two issues? So actually understanding as well that the tactical reasons that you might make applications in financial proceedings aren't mirrored in children and actually having to get them to understand that the two are completely separate even if they're very linked in their head and actually that there are different considerations for both yeah definitely I think child maintenance tends to kind of 
crop up and and payments and, and overnight contact impacting on things and impacting on needs and finances I think there's a real tendency to try and blur the boundaries and I think you have to be really clear with your client from the outset that this is child focus it's about what's in the best interest of the child and that it's completely separate to financial matters when we're looking at issuing an application for a child arrangements order we do need to make sure uh, that we bear in mind the no order principle so under section one of the children act 1989 where a court is considering to make an order under the children act it should not make an order unless it's satisfied that doing so will be better for the child than making no order at all so the court very much takes the attitude that if it's if something's not broken don't fix it parties really do need to look at every other possible option try mediation really try to to work through things to get um, a childcare arrangement that's going to work for them um, and really you know only as a last resort and if it's in the best interests of the child will the court step in and, and make an order and uh, particularly for older children the court is very slow to to make a child arrangements order particularly where such an order would conflict with the child's wishes of course with younger children they generally just fall into line with adult rules and arrangements um whereas older children will vote with their feet the court may consider it better to have no order rather than imposing an order that opposes a child's wishes well you know if the court were to impose an order in such circumstances where a child was very against having contact with that parent that's only going to serve to make that relationship worse and if anything um, is going to make the child even more reluctant to engage and spend time with that parent um, so as I say with older children the court very much takes the view that it's uh, better to to not make an order if necessary. That's um, really interesting because actually that's kind of uh, the sort of conversation you should be having with the client. Well, as we were saying, it's not something to jump into children proceedings. These are the kind of things that you should be flagging to the client from the outset. That actually, there is a no order principle and it really does need to be in the child's best interest to be making this application. That is what the court will be considering. Um, and sometimes that's quite helpful to refocus the mind of the, the client I think actually to have that conversation about about the courts and what the court's looking at and it's all about what's in the best interest of the child. Yeah definitely and especially with teenage children you know you really need to be thinking about um, what what their wishes and feelings are and whether it's appropriate to, to have an order um, you know really need to think about that carefully. There are also just uh, some restrictions that need to be considered when you're looking at applying for a child arrangements order just to bear in mind so the court will not the court will not make a child arrangements order for a child aged 16 unless there are exceptional circumstances although they can vary or discharge such orders and they'll, the court will also not make a child arrangements order regulating with whom a child spends time with or when they spend time with, which will endure beyond their 16th birthday unless there are exceptional circumstances. Um, so parents often think in their heads that it's 18, but actually they just need to be reminded that it's actually 16. However, the court will make a child arrangements order regulating with whom a child is to live 
endures until a child is 18 um, and there don't need to be exceptional circumstances for that but as, I, as we've discussed the court is still reluctant to make a child arrangements order in the first place that's going to regulate living arrangements beyond the age of 16 they wouldn't want to do that anyway unless it was a last resort you also uh, you can't make a, a child arrangements the court cannot make a child arrangements order in relation to a child who's in local authority care and a local authority so cannot apply for a child arrangements order and the court can't grant a child arrangements order in favour of a local authority and anyone who was a local authority foster parent for a child within the last six months can't apply for a child arrangements order unless they have the local authority's consent or if they're a relative of the child or if they've lived with that child for one year immediately preceding the application. And the last point on that is if there's a special guardianship order in force, then no one can apply for a child arrangements order regulating uh, with whom the child should live without the court's permission. Um, also, if there's a, a special guardianship order in force, uh, then no one can apply for a child arrangements order regulating with whom the child should live without the court's permission. Um, and we'll come, come on and talk about permission um, a little bit later on. I also just wanted to flag uh, some jurisdictional considerations if a case has an international element. Uh, so you need to establish whether the court has jurisdiction to make the order sought especially if you have a case where the applicant parent has recently just arrived in the jurisdiction with the child that needs to be ringing alarm bells. Um, and you'll need to make sure that section six of the C100 is fully completed with full detail to alert the court as to whether a child may be habitually resident elsewhere and whether there is or might be a jurisdictional issue and whether a request should be made or has already been made to a central authority in another state. So you really need to make sure that jurisdiction is addressed at the outset of proceedings. And if the parties don't address that, then the court can raise it. Later on, the court must state in its judgment and the order the basis on which it's accepted or rejected jurisdiction. So going back, I suppose, Carrie, to your point about the no order principle, the, there's now, not just now, there's been for a while a requirement for the parties to complete what we call a MIAM um, before issuing proceedings. It's the same in financial, but it's um, mediation information assessment meeting, which I'm sure I'm telling you and you already know, but actually um, it's something that you need to factor into the timings because it's not necessarily the norm that a client could bypass that. Um, and actually they probably do need to be going to meet a mediator and a mediator is saying that their case isn't suitable for mediation and signing that certificate and slotting it in and that may take a couple of days a week um, for them to slot that in so you do need to consider it. So there are obviously some exemptions as to when um, clients might not need to attend a MIAM and please chip in Carrie Lou if you've got different ones but I find the main one that you have to discuss with clients at some length is urgency and getting them to understand what they view as urgent um, to get a children application into the court is not necessarily what the court deems as urgent and they don't want to get into a situation where they've ticked that it's urgent and they don't need to attend a MIAM and the court looks at it down the line and says no hang on you do need to attend a MIAM and then everything's put on pause while they go and tick that box as it were so actually having the conversation with the client and it can be a bit of a difficult one because you're not saying that what they want to do isn't important and urgent but it just might not meet the court's threshold and actually to tick that box I do think it needs to be excessively high um do you find that you've got any others um exemptions that come across because the only other one I 
have seen is um, when there's no mediators within 15 miles. No, in, in terms of the my point, I have had it where we've issued a C100 on the basis of urgency and a court's accepted it, but has just provided um, a direction when listing it for the first hearing that the applicant is to attend a MIAM in the meantime. So we've gone off and, and got the client to do it. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, that that was okay, but obviously if, if it's time critical and, and whatever else, you don't necessarily want to be relying on that, but I have had it before where we've been able to go and get it before the next hearing and it's not stopped the application being issued. Another point to consider when making a child arrangements application is whether your client's got parental responsibility. It doesn't happen very often, but it's just a point to consider. There's certain circumstances where a court will automatically grant parental responsibility to an applicant and that tends to be in cases where the applicant is then named as the person who the child shall live with. Um, and then there's some other circumstances where it isn't automatically granted. Therefore, it's just something to flag up. It won't. It, it is unlikely to happen very often at all, but just something to flag that it's advisable if you're applying for a child arrangements order on behalf of an applicant or a client without parental responsibility, it's advisable to apply for a, a parental responsibility order in the alternative um, because if the application for a child arrangements order is unsuccessful then the court will consider the application for the parental responsibility order independently on its own merits so and that's a whole separate process which we won't go into but it's just something to flag up. What kind of circumstances would that come up in your experience Lou? Um, it tends to be if there's some kind of surrogacy arrangements um, and there's some quite complex rules it, it's it's section 43 of the human fertilization and embryology act it, it there's some provisions in there um but it, it tends to be more when there's a surrogacy point involved because most of the time and it typically tends to be fathers most of the time they're named on the birth certificate anyway if they're not married so it it, it doesn't tend to come up very often but it's just something to flag that's really interesting um i think now we come on to the uh fun topic of permission and who has permission to apply and who doesn't. The details of this can be found in section 10 of the Children Act 1989. So uh, the following categories can apply for a child arrangements order without the court's permission. So uh, the child's parent, guardian or special guardian, the child's step parent or any person who has parental responsibility for the child by virtue of a parental responsibility agreement or an order, anyone named as the person with whom that child is to live in a child arrangements order that's already in force, any party to a marriage or civil partnership in relation to whom the child is a child of the family, anyone with whom the child has lived for a period of three years. This period doesn't have to be continuous, but it must not have begun more than five years before or ended more than three months before the application is made. Any person who has the consent of each person named in an existing child arrangements order as the person with whom the child is to live. Any person who has the consent of each person with parental responsibility for the child. Any person who has the consent of the local authority if the child is in local authority care. Or any person who is not the child's parent or guardian who has parental responsibility for the child by virtue of being named in an existing child arrangements order as the person with whom the child is to spend time with or have contact with. So quite a long list of people who don't need permission. To bear in mind at this point as well is just that presumption of parental involvement, which I think is just worth flagging. So 
if you're acting on behalf of the child's parent, just keep in mind that the court will presume that parental involvement in the child's life will further the child's welfare unless the contrary is shown when deciding an application for a child arrangements order. You, you, you know, you do this, this issue does tend to crop up where there might have been an acrimonious breakup between the parents. And for example, a mother may say, you know, I just, the father is just, he's such a toxic character. I'm just, just not a good influence on, on the children. I don't want to spend time with them. And actually you often have to very clearly spell out to the client that the presumption is that it will benefit the child and is in is in their best interests for both parents to have an involvement uh, unless it can be shown um, that there's a, a real risk of harm of being caused to that child. So regardless of whatever the parent's relationship might be, it's going to be in the child's best interests to spend time with both of them. Coming on to uh, categories who do need permission. So if they don't fall into any of the categories we've mentioned, so for example, you may have a relative or an extended family member who does not have consent of all the persons who have parental responsibility for the child, or they don't satisfy the uh, requisite periods of residence. Um, so in those sorts of instances, they're going to need to apply to the court for permission. Where a special guardianship order is in force, then, as I've mentioned previously, any application for a child arrangements order regulating with whom the child is to live is going to require the court's permission. If the child is the applicant, then they will need the court's permission to bring the application and the court will grant permission if they're satisfied that the child has sufficient understanding to make the application. In cases where the applicant for permission is not the child, the court will look at the following factors when they decide whether to grant permission. So they'll look at the nature of the proposed application, they'll look at the proposed applicant's connection with the child and they'll look at the risk of that proposed application disrupting the child's life to such an extent that they would be harmed by it. And in a case where the child is being looked after by a local authority, then they'll look at the authority's plans for the child and the wishes and feelings of the child's parents. It might be helpful at this stage to go through kind of the form itself and making the application um, in terms of um, the sections and um, what needs to be in there, what doesn't need to be in there um, and that, that type of thing. Yeah, definitely. So suppose, um, I don't mind starting with the first page, actually what are you asking the court to do? Um, and the C100 essentially allows you to apply to the court for three different types of order. So one is the children arrangements order, which is the time that the children spend with the parents or which child which parent the child lives with and I suppose this is a good point to flag that um, clients will still often use the word custody who's got custody and maybe this is the time to really hammer home to them that there is no such thing as custody and the court's making um, orders about time that they're going to spend with and it feeds into your point I suppose Carrie that um, the court does tend to presume that parental involvement is positive um, and would generally continue but that's children arrangements order the second order you can ask the court to make is prohibitive steps and the third is specific issue order and the reason I've kind of hung them together is they kind of mirror one another so prohibitive steps is when you're asking um, the court to make an order to prevent someone doing something and the specific issue is when you're asking the court to make an order on something very 
um, discrete and finite. So what school the children uh, can attend or whether um, they should be having a certain medical treatment and the prohibitive steps is that they shouldn't be having that medical treatment so they can hang together. And I think also worth flagging is that sometimes the prohibitive steps, and it's not something I've seen, um, can be used to prevent the child spending time with someone. So I thought even then there's an overlap with the children arrangements order. So they all do tend to hang together and it's about having conversation with your client about whether they want the general order or sometimes you can be asking for a couple if there's a specific issues um, within a wider case so they want to spend more time with their child but also they want to have a say in what school the child goes to because the child's at that age so you may be ticking more than one of these boxes. Yeah and I think whilst I just remember to raise the point actually especially in relation to specific issue orders so for example if you've got an internal relocation case or you've got a case where there's a dispute about what school the child should attend really there's there's only going to be one outcome of that um you know it's kind of a yes or no answer um and i think in those sorts of cases something to really consider with the clients is arbitration rather than issuing court proceedings um uh, that could be a lot quicker a uh, you know, much quicker way to get an issue resolved and ultimately more cost effective than going through the court process so um, I think it's definitely something to consider when relocation cases and, and similar is, is, is whether arbitration might be appropriate. And that's actually, I completely agree, a conversation to be having if you've got a client that wants to relocate because chances are it's because they've got something lined up, so a job offer and those aren't going to last forever. So actually, yeah, having those conversations with them about whether they want to go an alternative route that will speed things up if it is a, a discrete point, I agree. I suppose the box underneath the tick boxes to what order you're applying, just use that to your advantage and actually set out, make it easy for the court. What are you asking them to do? Are you asking them to make an order for you to spend more time? You're asking them to make an order that the other parent should spend less time? Are you asking for a specific um, issue to be resolved about internal relocation, as Carrie said? So actually just set it out there. Just make make the court's life easy. They can see what you're asking for. Um, There's obviously a section concerns about risks of harm and that will be quite case specific and you'll know whether that is relevant and that will flag whether you need to be filling in a C1A and Lou's going to talk about that in a bit more detail um, later. But actually, if you're filling, what you just need to remember is if you're ticking yes to any of those, then you should be also popping a C1A in at the same time. Um, Additional information required actually this is quite important um, and I'll leave Carrie you know you had some thoughts about additional information. Yeah I think it's it's a useful section to consider um, because some of the um, factors it's talking about such as um, a case of an international element or whether an urgent hearing is required or permissions required um, it's sort of flagging up whether the case has a more complex element um, and I think those are issues we should be thinking about with regard to um, how the case is allocated by the how the case is allocated, um, and whether it's allocated to lay magistrates or a district judge. Um, and I think what I always do when I'm submitting the C100 is in my covering letter I will put justification as to as well as on the form itself, but I will also add a covering letter adding. The reasoning and justification as to why um, that particular case might require a district judge rather than magistrates. Um, Lou, I know we've talked about this previously 
kind of what were your thoughts on, on allocation and your experience? Of I think in terms of allocation, you, you, you sort of have to tread a fine line because what you're essentially saying to the court is, you know, this matter is so serious, it needs to be dealt with, you know, by by someone you know more senior so for example the difference between a district judge and a and a circuit judge so I think you do have to tread tread a fine line um however I think it's always helpful in the statement section of the form to just really highlight the complexity so for example an international relocation case um and just kind of put the flags the flags in so the court sees it when issuing and it may well be that it, it gets issued um, to an appropriate level straight away it may be it comes to a certain level that, and then at the first hearing you have to ask for it to be kind of elevated but I think you can take a view depending on the issues involved I mean certainly for an international relocation case um, it would you know it would go to a more senior level um, but then you know contact disputes um, could be dealt with essentially at magistrates level so it's just depending on the issues involved think about is there an issue regarding parental alienation for example that makes it more of a complex issue are there medical issues involved um, all kinds of things like that I think it's worth just flagging it as you say in covering letters and in the and in the form itself just so the court you know sees it from an early stage I feel like it's worth, whilst we're um, talking about additional information, flagging, there's a, a box in there, not only about urgent hearing, and I, I won't go on about the point that that's a conversation to have with your client about whether things are urgent, but also whether um, you ask them to formalise an agreement and a consent order. And that's not actually a particularly common thing. I know I've um, never done it, but Lou, have you had use the C100 to submit a consent order um, in children's proceedings? I have, but it, it doesn't happen very often because I think most of the time it, it it's being able to explain to your client that if you can agree matters, it doesn't necessarily need to be an order. You know, there doesn't need to be a stick to beat someone with, essentially. Um, and actually, if you can agree matters between you, the court pretty much, you know, linking with the no order principle, don't, don't want to get involved. Um, but I have had cases where for one reason or another that there has needed to be an order in place um and i have had one accepted by the court but there had to be a hearing and the second one because it was submitted during covid the courts obviously at that point reluctant to be having hearings so the order was approved but that's two that i've dealt with in seven years and i think that's relatively doesn't happen very often so just worth remembering that it's an option but it's probably like you said not one that's going to come up really frequently and I suppose this is probably the good time to flag the pilot scheme that the courts are running where they're trying to deal with C100s essentially if you're from um, certain parts of the country um, there's a central hub where C100s is being sent and dealt with and allocated so worth worth noting that. So we've obviously covered uh, various other bits, so permission, myams. So it makes sense, I think, to get to the meatiest part of the C100, um, which is the statement. And I just wondered if either of you had any tips or tricks that you do when you fill in these statements and what you're really trying to convey to the court by, by filling them in. Similar to what Lou mentioned earlier in that I'd attach um, relevant correspondence, such as a pre-action letter, just try and set, set things out as easily as possible for any good advisor to read. The bullet points, setting out time, exactly what's happened, you know, what the response has been, what the parties have tried to do, uh, to reach an agreement, 
and just bearing in mind the welfare lists, which is set out in the open active course, and just kind of using that as well as a framework as to the reasons why we're making the application and why it's in the best interest of the child. Lou, what were your what were your kind of top tips for this? I think in terms of the statement section, obviously parties will get opportunities to do full narrative statements a bit further along in proceedings. So really it's kind of the headlines, it's why you're making an application. Potentially you could give some background as to how, how you've got to where you've got to. And if, for example, it's for a child arrangements order, you'd be saying where you're a part or what your proposal is and also including what the status quo is currently if there is one. I always think that's quite a helpful thing to flag up. And if it's an application for a specific issue in terms of holidays or schooling, holidays, for example, it's, it's probably worth you know, setting out the key dates, airlines, all the factual information, if things have been booked and just kind of flagging up if, if the holiday is soon. Um, it's another bit to put, you know, all your urgency stuff in. And same with schooling, you know, if it needs to be decided by a certain date or, you know, forms need to be filled out or, or that kind of thing. It's, it's flagging up those kinds of issues. Yeah, I think flagging up, for example, if, if father's gone without contact for, it's been like four or five months or whatever since dad has had contact, kind of highlighting that sort of issue, isn't it? Saying, you know, this is why it needs to be dealt with quickly. I guess as with all court forms, you just want to remember that it's a person reading it, so make their lives easy and everyone's probably slightly happier. I suppose we've covered off urgency a little um, already, um, but ties in with without notice hearings, and I just wondered if either of you had any flags as to what you think the court tend to be considering when they're looking at urgent and without notice, and if you've had anything knocked back or let through what your views were on what you should be putting in here, if you do want a hearing very soon or your client wants there to be no notice to the other side. Lou? I think a lot of it is managing clients' expectations. So if you've got a client that is having contact, but the level of contact that they're having is not what they they want, for example, it's understanding that actually, you know, there is contact in place. So a court is going to be less likely to treat that as urgent than someone where contact has just completely ceased, for example. So I think it's, it's managing clients' expectations on urgency and court listings. And in terms of without notice, that's quite draconian I suppose to be having a a hearing where one party doesn't know it's happening and if you wanted without notice um, hearing what would sort of your reasons be and what would you be trying to convey to the court in in this section? I mean the only time that I've done it as a a without notice application is when it's been kind of conjoined with a non-molestation or an occupational type situation that's where I've seen it happen. I think my only experience is with with a non-molestation and an occupation order as well actually yeah. I've had one with um, risk risk of harm to the child but yeah I think what the takeaway point from that I suppose is that the threshold is really high and you really are going to have to be convincing. The rest of the um, C100 is largely self-explanatory or we've already covered it in terms of things like the international element so I suppose now is probably a good time to talk about the C1A which you should be completing in tandem if you've ticked any of those boxes on the first page suggesting the risk of harm. So in terms of a, a C1A, um, this tends to accompany a C, well this does accompany a C100 when there's allegations of harm and, and domestic violence. So it's essentially a supplemental information form um, and you complete this because if you believe there are allegations that the children listed within the C100 may have suffered or be at risk of suffering domestic abuse or violence and abuse. Um, And domestic violence 
slash abuse is defined on the form, but it means any incident of threatening behaviour, violence or abuse, and that can be psychological, physical, sexual, financial or emotional between adults who are or have been intimate partners or family members, regardless of gender or sexuality. And the Children Act 1989 defines those terms as harm means ill treatment or damage to health and development, including, for example, damage suffered from seeing or hearing the ill treatment of, of another, so being witness to it. Develop means physical, intellectual, emotional, social or behavioural development. Health means physical or mental health. And ill treatment includes sexual abuse and forms of ill treatment which are not physical. So again, it, you know, there can, there can be mental abuse as well as physical. So in terms of the form itself, obviously section one is fairly self-explanatory in terms of um, its, its party's details. And then moving on to section two, you then need to A, select the type of, of abuse your client or the, the children, child in question have suffered. And that can be physical, emotional, psychological, sexual, or financial. So you simply tick the box. Then you also just need to make reference whether there are any orders in place. So, for example, a non-molestation order, occupation order, restraining order, any, anything that's kind of in place, particularly injunctive, needs to be included here and some information provided in terms of the date it was issued, the length of the order and obviously the name of the court who issued it. And then you go on to the, the important part, which is setting out details of instances that's occurred. And here, um, it, it's always good to be as specific and selective as possible. So rather than doing reams and reams of examples, it's always best to pick kind of your, your worst examples in terms of, you know, the extreme behaviour and also your most recent. And you can be specific or provide approximate dates or timeframes over which kind of multiple repeat behaviours have happened of the same the same vein, essentially. You then set out the nature of the behaviour, so what happened. And again, it, it's good here to, to be specific if possible. Then you will you can then confirm whether you've sought help, be it through citizens' citizens advice, an agency such as Women's Age, or even a medical professional, and whether they did anything about it. Um, and this, you know, in terms of women's aid for example um i've had cases where a client has then moved into a refuge as a result of something that's happened um again if you've gone to see your gp there could have could have been treatment as a result of that and again it is good to include that here and then in terms of section three this covers the point of abduction and again this kind of links to the urgency of your your c100 application so there's kind of two elements to abduction. There's child abduction, which is the wrongful removal of a child from any person having or entitled to lawful control of that child. Or the second is international child abduction. So that's the wrongful removal or wrongful retention away from the country where the child usually lives. A point, a practical point to consider with this um, and to address in the form, especially on the international child abduction element, is the passport. Where is the passport? discuss this with your client, discuss the risks, you know, ascertain where they think they are, have they had any contact with them since contact has stopped, and just kind of find out as much information as possible. Obviously, there's there's separate mechanisms in terms of international child abduction and, and separate proceedings to assist with this. But again, it's, it's, it's just something to flag up. And then in terms of section four, 
This is whether there's any concerns you'd like to raise regarding children. Obviously, you would have raised points earlier on in the form, but just this is kind of a catch-all in terms of safety and well-being, which can be dealt with there. And then obviously what will then subsequently happen is the respondent will respond to the allegations. Um, but in terms of the allegations themselves, obviously within proceedings at a later date, you can expand on these within your Scott schedules and responses to Scott schedules. So, you know, this is not your only point of reference. There will be directions made at a later date where you can elaborate on this. It's just as important to include with your C100 where you think there is a risk of harm. I suppose just going back to filling in the C100 then, actually knowing that you've got this C1A as a backup to show them this is what the court's kind of looking at can um, stop some clients wanting to tick things when actually there's not really firm examples of it they they can say that they think the child might come to some harm but actually when you get into it and you've got a c1a in front of them they they realize actually what they're referring to probably doesn't come under that and the other thing to flag up where i've used it before um is also you know parental alienation and 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 that side of it um again i think sometimes people think it's just limited to physical abuse or domestic violence but actually you know there's wider issues within contacting children at proceedings and again those can be flagged in a c1a how do you deal with the C1A when it's more of a general, so if you've got, say, coercive control, I know there's been lots of commentary in the courts about whether that you can pin that down to specific instances or it's just like a general sense of behaviour. And I suppose parental alienation would probably come under that as well, that actually you can't, in the C1A, is quite finite where you're fitting it in. And actually it's a bit difficult to say, well, it's just, it's just a pattern. There is just this going on. And how would you tackle that? Well, when it tends to be parental alienation, there tends to be that the child either isn't going to contact or there potentially is, you know, a persuasive element as to why they're not going to contact that the child can't explain. For example, there's, there's a reason they're not going, but it's not obvious. I suppose it, it, you, if it's a general pattern, it's just a general pattern. For example, you could you would put in, I guess, if they haven't been for so many months, you'd put that in as your, your dates would be your months and then they weren't attending. As a um, junior lawyer, I think it's things like that that can make you come a bit unstuck, whereas actually what you're wanting to put on a form doesn't necessarily um, conform to the form's quite rigid um, boxes. So I just wondered how how you tackle that. But actually, it's just about getting the information down and making it as clear as you can within the the confines of the the form. Okay, so that that really probably brings an end to our podcast now. So thank you for listening and thank you to Carrie and Hebe for your time as well. Thanks, Lou. Thank you. You have been listening to the Junior Family Law Podcast, a collaboration between Burgess Salmon, Mills and Reeve and Newton Kearns. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode.